All right, welcome to the Data John podcast. Since uh, we have decided to postpone our annual event uh, due to the coronavirus, we will be recording some episodes highlighting the incredible work around Philadelphia. Uh, since our focus is data science in this region, we figured why not start off with a project directly impacting uh, Philadelphia and actually the whole world uh, at this point, um, the CHIME project or COVID-19 hospital impact model for epide uh, epidemics uh, app that was developed by Michael Becker, Becker, a senior data scientist at uh, Penn Medicine and founder of Data Philly, and Marika Jackson, a data scientist at Health Union and co-director of Code for Philly. Uh, good afternoon, Michael and Marika. How are you doing? Hi. Hi. Doing good. <laughs> good. Um, we're um, super excited that uh, you all uh, agreed to join us on this because it's such an important time to um, kick off with this topic and to highlight some of the things that are going on great in Philadelphia, uh, but also things that are life impacting. Um, so right now we're sitting here um, and as of this morning, uh, there were 436,000 cases of coronavirus worldwide, uh, 55,000 in the United States. And then here in Philadelphia, we have about 252 cases. I know New Jersey is starting to spike. Um, Delaware, I know is over 100 as, as well. And one of the things on a lot of caregivers' minds is hospitalization, utilization, and um, what are the resources available? I mean, it was all over the news this morning, just a asking, are pretty much governors begging for help um, to care for the, all the sick patients we need? Um, so, Michael, um, Chime app is a tool that allows public health hospitals to officially, and officials to understand the hospitality ca capacity. Can you talk a little bit about that? What does it do? What it's used for? Sure. So, the Chime app uses a standard epidemiological model called a SIR model to project hospital capacity requirements around the COVID-19 crisis. And we built it originally to help our own team communicate to the hospital administrators at Penn. Um, and it's being used in this way in many places. But we've also discovered that it's also being used by public health officials all around the world to help make these decisions around like things like so social distancing and other efforts to flatten the curve. Um, and, you know, we only know about how it's being used based on the feedback that we've gotten, but it's really hard to tell sometimes exactly how, who is using it and for what. Yeah. Uh, I remember, I think, uh, this weekend or late last week I was, uh, we were, we were messaging and I saw some news story, stories and all of a sudden like some popped up in Maine and then I saw some in like South America. I mean, all over the place uh, where they're um, referencing the, the Chime app, which is really uh, incredible uh, to see. So a lot has gone on in the two weeks, maybe three weeks, I think just two weeks since you kicked this off. So can you walk us through uh, the process of taking the Chime app from a Jupyter notebook uh, to a full-blown online uh, web application? Sure. So <clears throat> roughly two weeks ago, um, the executive team at Penn reached out to the data science team for help around capacity planning. And one, some of our data scientists started working with some epidemiologists at Penn. Um, and also, I believe we consulted epidemiologists outside of Penn as well to just make sure that we were properly framing the problem and following standard sort of ep epidemiological approaches. So uh, data scientists on my team, Corey Chivers, he has like a little bit of a background in implementing these kinds of models. And so he implemented the initial SIR model 
I think it took him less than a day to do so. And we basically immediately after implementing this sort of like notebook driven model, we got some feedback from the executive team. Um, they had lots of really great feedback. And um, one of the first questions that they had was, well, what if this particular parameter was actually this? What if it was actually that? Um, because there's just so much uncertainty around what the actual parameters of this pandemic are. Everything we know at this point is coming in a large part out of China. And there's just so much difference between how the health system works in health systems work in China versus how health systems work in the United States. Um, so we just based on this initial feedback, we basically immediately decided this needed to be turned into an interactive dashboard. Um, so I reached I, I immediately like reached out to the community to try to get feedback on what is like the best approach for that. We don't do a lot of interactive dashboards on our team. So I, I, asked, I asked other people for input. Um, and so lots of lots of work was be, being done during this time by our team looking for research papers, mostly coming out of China, but also and how how to bound the range of the parameters that go into the model. And we focused on which parameters are going to be most relevant to the decision makers, specifically around capacity planning, rather than giving them raw um, SIR simulation output. I think earlier on, we gave them the raw output of the SIR model. And it's hard for them to like understand, okay, like based on this raw output, what decisions do we have to make? So we tried to reframe uh, everything in sort of the, the that frame, framework around capacity planning. And then, uh, you know, as we reached out to the civic hacking community for input, um, I think initially Michael Chow and Quinn uh, provided input around what sort of libraries we should use for the interactive dashboard and kind of quickly landed on Streamlit because Actually, Michael Chow has like a really great video where he sort of demonstrates three different frameworks and Streamlit was one of them. And he spends probably 45 minutes or more showing off like the first two frameworks. And then he spends like the last, I don't know, five or 10 minutes showing, now here's how you do it with Streamlit. So I was like, all right, I got to use Streamlit. Um, and so we realized all, after like implementing this interactive tool and giving it to decision makers that like even with an interactive tool, they didn't necessarily know like what were the what's the best way to use this? Like what param what value should we put putting in for these parameters? So we decided like really early on that a data scientist, the data science team kind of had to be in the loop there um, to translate the output of the tool into like a digestible report that the hospital administrators could could understand. Um, so that's the role of our chief data scientist, Michael Drugalis. He does that every day. Um, and then the immediate impact on Penn was actually pretty surprising. Uh, they, the hospital quickly sprang into action to do a bunch of different things. They asked the state of Pennsylvania if they could begin 24-7 con construction on a hospital that has actually been under construction for several years now to add 200 extra beds rapidly. They um, were able to get buy-in to cancel elective surgeries. And they um, were able to assess when to uh, stop accepting transfers from other hospitals. And they've started planning around uh, emergency room triage to help deal with increased demand. 
And so based on like this kind of really dramatic feedback we got from the hospital system, we realized that like it was pretty, pretty our obligation to get this in the hands of as many decision makers as possible as quickly as possible. And so that's where Code for Philly really came came into into the mix. And luckily, I worked with Marika and Code for Philly on on some previous efforts. And so I, I was able to reach out to them and our team, including a lot of countless individuals that were civic hackers were able to like work through the weekend and turn basically this 300 line Python uh, hack that Corey and I put together into a product that could be worked on by the whole world. And enter Marika. So Marika, <laughs> could you, uh, could you tell us a little bit about um, how data Philly got involved in what that looked like from the civic hacking organization. Yeah, um, so Code for Philly is a brigade of Code for America. We do uh, pretty much anything people want to come in and do that uh, they want to make available to anybody. Um, so a lot of like specific open source projects for uh, groups we've been moving towards like actually building things for nonprofits. Um, and we had worked with uh, Michael on a data hackathon that we just recently finished. And he reached out, uh, also knowing like in a past life, I was an epidemiologist, so it's just like uh, my jam. And um, asked about how do we take this and and make it so that people across the world, uh, across the US can easily access it and it won't shut down or it won't break. Uh, so being able to take the app and make it scalable. Um, we started, uh, we, put them through the whole, like, here's how we set up Code for Philly projects and uh, spun it up and directing people to our Slack workspace uh, and then starting to direct people to like separate channels based on what they were trying to work on. We got probably um, 500 people uh, added to our Slack channel just because they were, they had questions about it. They wanted to work on it. They wanted to do things. Um, a mixture of people who actually are decision makers who are applying what they're finding from this app uh, into their uh, plans for handling the uh, epidemic and people who are actually like developers who want to come and and make it so that it's uh, hosted well, uh, that the app is scalable and that um, it's broken up enough so that like refreshing it doesn't break anything. So uh, essentially taking uh, this uh, fantastically um, built uh, and well-applied model and turning it into an open source project in like 72 hours. This this is so amazing um, because all the work that's been done to build these communities over the last two or three years could not have come at a better time to put everyone together. So. Um, it is an amazing um, thing that you're doing, um, all of us, all of you. Um, so you, tell us about, Michael, tell us about the function you're using in, um, to forecast admissions um, and why, why this over other functions? Sure. So um, one, one of the biggest reasons is that SIR models, they're, they're really simple and easy to understand. Um, that's like good from the perspective of the users, but also good from the perspective of us data scientists who aren't epidemiologists. It allowed us to kind of move rapidly and deliver value when it was most needed at the very beginning of this epidemic. And um, I think uh, also SIR models are really good early on in an epidemic, but will begin to lag behind 
as the epidemic progresses, mostly due to like the simplistic, simplistic nature of these models. And so this is something that our team is thinking about and working on. We're working with epidemiologists at Penn on these, on what the, the next steps will be. And um, of course, we love input from the community and others. I think Marika has some like unique uh, sort of a unique view on these things as well because of her yeah. epidemiology background. Well, the issue with a new pathogen like COVID-19, and especially since we haven't really seen it affect a large number of people, is that you don't have much data on how it behaves and how it uh, is managed in a large uh, uh population. So taking a model that doesn't require a lot of data for input and building something that can actually predict like here's a potential of what we'll probably see, what we're going to need in terms of capacity and uh, when we can start thinking about like uh, limiting control over interaction uh, is incredibly useful and, and, and actually like one of the most beautiful things about epidemiology to me. Um, is that you really do have to start with what you have and what you know. And when you don't have a lot, like that requires a relatively simplistic model. Um, and I think this is also, in terms of my experience outside of epidemiology, working for uh, uh, institutions that have data teams, is thinking, taking a step back and, and not jumping to the most complex solution first. Uh, figure out what you can know now um, help people understand that, get them on, on the same page, and then start moving more towards a, a complex uh, solution. And, and I think that's a very beautiful uh, example of what Penn has done in, in terms of uh, building their capacity for understanding uh, COVID-19. All right, so let's dive in uh, to the model a little bit and talk about some assumptions. Um, what are some assumptions that uh, were challenging to work through, and what assumptions are you still working through as the the virus kind of progresses, and we actually do have real data uh, coming in to to into the model? Yeah, so I actually um, I, I would say that like the biggest assumptions are actually around the the input parameters to the model, and like there's some specific parameters that probably are, are the most important, and like the literal most important parameter of of the model is the doubling rate. So what the doubling rate describes is essentially like how many days until the number of cases, the number of infections double. And so based on our own observations in, in Philadelphia, it, it actually looks like that doubling rate is in the two to four day range, which is very short compared to um, some of the publications that are that are out there. When we first started this project, the a American Health Association was recommending uh, for mod modeling purposes, an assumption of seven to 10 days. And so there's a huge discrepancy between what we're actually observing in Philadelphia um, and I think also the rest of the United States and these recommendations around seven to 10 days. And, you know, we're not sure what exactly ca is causing this discrepancy, but we believe it may be due to the lag in confirmation of cases following infection. So lack of uh, you know, testing and other factors, just the, the, the actual lag time between uh, someone getting infected and knowing that they've been infected. Um, but the, at this point, that's just a, ge a best guess as to yeah. what's going on with the doubling rate. I want to, you know, it feels like uh, the lack of data, the, the fact that we aren't testing, you know, large populations or even samples to make any assumptions around what the doubling rate would actually be because we don't really know uh, what the infection rate 
is right like those must be real really hard challenges to to kind of work through because there's just so many assumptions um going on yeah so i mean we do our best to kind of bound like a best case worst case for the around the doubling rate but because the doubling rate is the factor that causes the growth of the epidemic to be exponential it is one of the most if not the most important factor um and then there's several other parameters to the to the to the sir model uh or to our model that impact have like kind of a, a major impact on the results so one is the market rate of the hospital so what this what what this is used for is to come up with some estimates for um the 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 number of patients that will be seen in in our hospital uh because one of the inputs one of the other inputs is the basically the size of the population of the region so we we know that our employer share of the hospitalization um in the region under normal normal circumstances but we really have no idea how this pandemic is going to impact how many covid-19 patients come to our uh, hospitals versus other hospitals in the region. And then uh, there's also hospital admission rate. So the best estimates are based on data that's come out of China. And we really don't know what the admission standards, what, like, what differences there are between the admission standards in China versus the admission standards in the United States that could impact the admission rate in the United States. So we're using an, a rate that is adjusted for assumptions around asystematic patients, but there's a lot of uncertainty about the value and of, of hospital admission rates and the precision around that, that value. And then finally, there's length of stay around both hospitalization, ICU patients, and ventilated patients. So we've, we're, we're currently using internal benchmarks related to um, a similar illness, at least what we believe to be a similar illness called acute respiratory distress syndrome. And we're using this rather than the published rates from other countries. And again, this is due to the uncertainty in the medical practices in other regions. Uh, so, uh, Michael, just a couple quick questions. Um, one, you referenced a couple times where you're looking at some of the research from China. Is there a source that you're using that um, others could use as well? Sure. I don't have all the sources off the top of my head. We actually have someone on my team who's spent like almost all of their time just scouring the research and keeping up to date on the research. So I can definitely provide to you some references. There's also in our user documentation for Chime, there are a couple references to some of the data, like the data sets and research papers that we've used. Perfect. We can post them here. And then um, secondly, there's uh, you and I have talked in the past, and we've been to the Data Philly meetups, and you talk quite often on advanced machine learning techniques in the work. So you're not using them here for the, for that. Why is that? Well, we, I mean, I think Marika kind of covered it best, but just kind of to, to, to reiterate, um, we have like a big data gap here. So you can't like, for example, apply deep learning to a problem where you have basically no data. And... I mean, you'll see people on the internet trying to, but um, I don't necessarily recommend it. And this is exactly why epidemiology exists, right? Is to sort of model these kinds of pandemics. And so that's why we're applying um, an epidemiological model. And you, 
you're certainly not going to convince anyone in the public health sector to apply some fancy deep learning model when there's a whole field of study that is already devoted to this problem. And um, so, especially with like a pathogen, we don't have that much understanding of the transmission time, the recovering time, et cetera. And sure, there are fancier models out there. And we're certainly like fancier epidemiological models out there. And we're certainly looking at this at Penn, but there's this time value trade-off. So that's why we chose the, this kind of simpler approach. So uh, just talking a little bit about, uh, you know, working with epidemiologists, uh, epi epidemiologists and public health officials, like what are some challenges um, with working with domain experts, uh, experts who aren't data scientists? Obviously, they add a lot of value, but they can, there can also be challenges. Yeah, so the, the hardest part of being a data scientist is effectively communicating the meaning of your, the output of your, of your results, of your tools. And so our chief data scientist has been providing daily reports to the health system, and he's been adjusting those reports and those presentations um, based on the input parameters, um, oh, sorry, and the input parameters based directly on feedback from those kind of stakeholders. So he gets feedback in these daily meetings, um, and the next day he tries to incorporate that, that feedback in, into his approach to presenting this information. And there's, there's certainly challenges around working with epidemiologists, but, um, and primarily that's around understanding the domain. And, but we're really fortunate that we have some team members with prior experience around epidemiology. Um, Penn has some some of the best epidemiologists in the world, and also, you know, I my team has consulted with other other epidemiologists as well. I, I, I very early on, I actually reached out to Marika. I don't know if you want to say anything else about this, Marika, but I reached out to Marika to just kind of ask her, like, hey, can you like sort of look over what we've done here and validate our approach? I think also from the perspective of uh, departments of health and hospitals that are using this tool to make decisions, um, for those of us who have worked in the private sector, like if I say that we had, you know, 2 million sessions coming to our website and we actually had 1.5 million sessions, the loss for me is really not that big, right? Like there's not that much of an issue with me getting the number off. If you are a department of health for a state or a hospital that has to save lives based on these decisions, the uh, necessity of understanding how that number was calculated is much higher. So having people be able to look at the tool, accept that it's doing the calculations well and understand it is a relatively high priority with something like this in terms of an open source project. That's that's awesome. And, and you know, I, I... I admire you for um, both of you for uh, reaching out beyond just the walls that you're in. And there's been a lot of conversations online about um, using non-medical data scientists modeling uh, coronavirus predictions and the problems that this might create. Um, but you reached out to Code for Philly community early on and had a lot of success. Um, so what are some of the pros and cons um, of using data, citizen data scientists in the project and not just staying within Penn Medicine's walls? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll start uh, with this question, but I would like Marika to provide her input as well. Um, the, the, some of the pros are that we were able to rapidly provide and iterate on a tool that is being used by countless numbers of individuals. And so one of the cons is we get a lot of feedback 
and ideas around ways to improve the model that we that we're using. Uh, it's kind of hard, especially like when we're in the midst of this this crisis, to react to that kind of fire hose of suggestions and information coming in from the community. Um, it's like we're I'm we're really grateful that we have uh, Code for Philly and the other volunteers to kind of help us manage that, but. This feedback is also cru- crucial. For example, just uh, this weekend, several people kind of, it's kind of interesting. Several people reached out to us almost simultaneously. They had found a bug in the way that we were calculating the emissions for uh, the chime tool. And that was causing nearly like a two, two times undercount of the number of expected emissions. And so if we had an open source chime, we may never have identified that, that error and, so there's clear value in you know open sourcing and collaborating with the community on these efforts. I, I think from my perspective, the biggest benefit is that um, uh, epidemiologists and individuals who work within those systems don't necessarily adopt new tools quickly. And so having people who have uh, content expertise in like Streamlit or expertise in like other tools that are still Python based that can build dashboards. Folks who have uh, uh, the ability to uh, do Kubernetes uh, clusters and 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 be able to host it and understand if uh, the load balance is still working. That's been incredibly beneficial because it's not something that uh, a Department of Health or um, a lot of smaller hospitals are going to be able to pivot on very quickly. I I also actually really love that we have two very distinct groups of people participating in the project uh, in our workspace, that there's people who have an immense amount of content expertise in um, how their systems are gonna respond and also in how the model is calculated and, and employed. And I, I honestly think that we, we haven't really had a lot of people who are just uh, asking for pie in the sky machine learning models. Um, a lot of them are just there to help and, and add their level of understanding um, in, in a way that isn't super uh, obtrusive. I, I don't, I'm, if that makes any sense. That, that totally makes sense. Um, so what's next? Where, where is this going? What, uh, what features are you adding to the model or what's the next, uh, the next step in the project? Sure. So, uh, well, as time continues to evolve and it's changing rapidly, all the time. By the time this podcast is released, I'm sure it will be a very different tool. Um, from a capacity planning perspective, we really need to adjust our approach to better account for the later phases of the epidemic. This SIR model that we, we that we've employed is really good at, at at the early phases, but it's not going to really scale or, and be predictive in in later phases. So that's you know one of the one of the things that's definitely going to happen in the short term with Chime. They're also like working on making it more feature rich. Um, Streamlit is like really easy to to work with. It allows you to like really rapidly prototype tools like this, but it's not doesn't necessarily have all the features that we would want for implementing the the tool. And so we're currently, I believe, looking at transitioning it from Streamlit over to to Dash. And also from a so from a civic hacking perspective. There's, you know, many other questions that hospitals are going to need to answer before this crisis is over. Some some examples are how can we safely speed up discharging patients to open up beds for new for new patients? How uh, 
or can we identify patients with the highest need for ventilation? Can we take a data-driven approach to, to triaging patients? And there's lots of things that we don't even know that we need to know. And we just need to be able to re react rapidly to this epidemic. And I, I'm sure, Marika, you have some really great input on this as well. Well, I think from Coverville's uh, perspective is we're trying to move as much off of Penn's plate as possible because they have other things that are more important that they need to focus on uh, while still allowing this app to be accessible to anybody who... If, um, one of the things we're actually trying to manage is uh, organizations that are using the app to make decisions need to be able to access the analysis they used to make that decision. So if a parameter is updated or something is changed in a way that it just adds more functionality and not necessarily just corrects something, uh, they still have the capacity to use that version. That's one of the uh, features that, that we're working on. Um, just implementing uh, more functionality, more shareability, uh, making it easier to like set parameters and then share those settings to another person. Uh, we're working on all that and always looking for people who want to come help out and do do some of this work. Yeah, so uh, great segue. Uh, what do you guys need help with and how can people get involved? Sure. Um, so we can always use more help with, with Chime, both manage, like, for example, we could always use help just managing the project, um, providing expert feedback, especially from like the epidemiology, epidemiology community. We're constantly getting feedback and adding new features. So we could use help from Python coders, especially those familiar with the Pi data stack. And we have like a both a GitHub and a Slack in case you want to get involved. And additionally, we're embarking on developing models that are going to be strictly internal, uh, based on internal data sets to answer some of the problems I just described. So, and a big challenge for my team and other teams in the healthcare setting is deploying these kinds of models directly to the electronic medical records so that the clinicians can have access to the direct access to the results. And unfortunately, electronic medical record vendors have been really slow to provide this kind of functionality. And, and even where they have started to focus on predictive mo modeling inside of the electronic medical record. They've primarily been focusing on pushing their own models rather than enabling the industry as a whole to provide these desperately needed tools. And so before the, this whole crisis began, um, my team had already started working on an open source toolkit called DSDK, which stands for Data Science Deploy Kit. And we've been uh, working on, it's this toolkit is kind of geared towards solving some of the common problems inside of deploying models to the electronic medical record. And so it's already being used internally by our team for several several models that we run internally. And I'm hoping that within like the next few days, hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, we'll have another civic hacking initiative sort of geared towards enhancing this toolkit and uh, allowing hospital systems to accelerate their ability to develop and deploy these uh, types of predictive tools. How about you, Marika? Um, I need like four more hours in every day. <laughs> um, if people want to get involved, they can go to codeforphilly.org backslash chat. That's actually the best way to contact us, get on our Slack channel, and we can direct you to the correct conversation. 
we're managing all of uh, the work that's needed through GitHub issues and uh, GitHub project boards. Uh, so you can still be able to see what needs to get done if it fits within your skill set. My uh, biggest goal here is just to take uh, as much as Penn wants to make available to other groups, especially organizations that don't have fast technical uh, agility, uh, and give them the ability to make decisions that are at the level that, of the decisions that Penn Medicine is making. So as much as we can do to help facilitate that, uh, I, can, I can wait to sleep when we get our next quarantine, I guess, uh, and, and uh, happy to like make sure that that's happening. Yeah, is... and sorry. No, go ahead, Michael. I just, wanted to, I just wanted to say, you know, Marika has been kind of amazing uh, both Marika and the rest of the the crew at Code for Philly, like we really could not have done this without the civic hacking community at large. And I feel pretty strongly that we can't really depend on our government at, at this point in time to react quickly enough to this crisis. And so it's pretty much everyone's duty to do what they can to apply their expertise to help solve this crisis help you know make this crisis not you know not as bad as it could be and so i just you know i really am so thankful of the civic hacking community and marika and and the team yeah i was you couldn't have said it any better i i admire um both you marika and michael for what you've done i, I know this will be like a story that um years years on we'll talk about some of the good things that came out of the pandemic of of 2020. Um, at the end of this podcast, there's been a, an additional 5,000 people around the world who have been diagnosed with coronavirus. And I think we're only starting. And so uh, some of the stuff that you're doing is ju just should be held up as, uh, as models for our community. Thank you for what you're doing. Dan, any parting words or? Uh, no, just thank you for everything that you're doing. This is incredible work. Everybody uh, who listens to this should follow um, uh, Michael and Marika on Twitter. Follow Code for Philly. Join the Slack channel. I know uh, I, I, I'm on the Slack channel and it's pretty amazing to just see the conversations going on around this time. Um, I wish I could participate more, but um, it is incredible seeing you guys work with uh, technologists and experts in the area. So thank you so much. We'll uh, share every resource that we talked about uh, on a, uh, our website, as well as uh, be retweeting all the updates on the Chime app as, a, as they're available uh, from you, Michael, and from the and Marika, from you uh, with Code for Philly.